So I recently read this funny story about this woman who was trying to fix her husband, right? And the funny thing about it is that she wrote this story, the problems that she was having, on a tech support log for some reason. Whatever reason it was, I don't know why she chose to write it on there, but she did. And this is what she wrote. She said, Dear Tech Support, Last year, I upgraded from Boyfriend 5.0 to Husband 1.0. And I noticed a slowdown in the overall performance, particularly in the flower and jewelry applications of that program that had operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. Now, in addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs such as Romance 9.5 and personal attention, 6.5, but instead installed undesirable programs such as NFL 5.0 and NBA 3.0. And now, conversation 8.0 no longer runs, and house cleaning 2.6 just simply crashes the system. She said, I've tried running nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail what can I do, signed a desperate housewife. Now look, if I was working at the company and I got that coming across my computer screen, I know what I would do, right? Delete, waste of my time, right? I don't know how you would respond. Would you respond humorously or, or would you just delete it like I did? And this is how the company chose to respond. They said, dear housewife, first, you need to keep in mind that boyfriend 5.0 is just an entertainment package. Right? Well, husband 1.0 is an operating system. At the command line, try typing in, I thought you loved me, and download tears 6.2 and install guilt 3.0. They went on and they said, if all that works as designed, husband 1.0 should automatically run the applications jewelry 2.0 and flowers 3.5. But then they said, remember, Right? you got to remember, overuse can cause husband 1.0 to default to grumpy silence 2.5 or beer 6.1. And then they said beer 6.1 is a nasty program that will make husband 1.0 vulnerable to the dreaded fat belly virus. And it will embed snoring loudly dot wave files into the system. Now, in addition, whatever you do, they said, do not install mother-in-law 1.0. Right? Amen, right? right? Or try to reinstall another boyfriend program. These are not supported applications, and they will crash husband 1.0. So in summary, they said husband 1.0, it's a great program, but it does have a limited memory and cannot learn new applications all that quickly. So they said you might consider adding additional software to improve memory and performance. They said we personally recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Lingerie 9.9. Regards, tech support. Right. Now listen, right, this, is a, this is a funny story, right? a funny illustration, but I think it points to one thing that I know to be true about every person in this room this morning and every person watching online this morning. Right? You see, what I believe the wife uh, was, was saying when she hoped is that her boyfriend would remain exactly the same, if not better, once they got married. 
Right? The, the wife had some serious hopes about her future. And I think that every person in this room, every person watching online has the same feelings, right? We have hopes for something. We, look, by nature are hopers, right? We, by nature, are hopers. We, we have hopes, right? People, they, they go to school with the hope that one day they will graduate, right? People, people graduate and they hope that one day they're going to have that dream job that they have always wanted, Right? People who are single may hope to be married someday, just like the woman from the story that we just talked about. Right? People, they get married, and sometimes they hope to get kids into the house. Right? And, then, and then parents, once you have kids in the house, what do you do? You hope the kids get out of the house, right? right? There's hope, right? There are a lot of things that I do not know about the person sitting next to you. Right? But I do know one thing. We by nature, have hope. Right? The, the person sitting next to us has hopes. And so here's the thing, Foundry Church. Right? Well, what do we do with that? Right? So when the, when the Bible, right, when the Word of God talks about hope, it's not talking about mere optimism, right? just, just positivity. Right? When the Bible talks about hope, when we read about hope in Scripture, it's not talking about some hyped-up, rose-colored glasses kind of hope. It's not hoping that your sweet boyfriend will keep getting you flowers once you get married. Right? It's not just positive thinking. Right? When we read about hope in the Bible, when we, when we look at hope in Scripture, it's a get-off-the-mat kind of hope. It's a real hope. It's a, it's a Rocky-type hope in the, in the last you know, seconds of the round in the boxing match with Apollo Creed. It's that kind of hope. It's a hope that can sustain you through the hard times of life. All right, so look at it like this. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about a resurrection kind of hope. A resurrection kind of hope. An Easter kind of hope. Right? An Easter Sunday hope. It is a hope that rings true in the very familiar story of Easter. And that story goes like this, right? We know it. Early in the morning, that very first Easter Sunday, a group of women went to the tomb and they found that it was empty. Right? There was an angel that broke the news to them that Jesus was alive. And so the women, they just drop everything and they take off and they run to the disciples who are just sitting around and they tell them about what the angel had said. And the disciples, two of them, James, uh, Peter and John, they actually have a foot race. They're like, first one to touch the tomb door wins. And they race back to the tomb, right? And then we know that Jesus shows up a little later and for 40 days he's there and the rest is history. Right? But, but I'm not sure if you know this or not. There's, just, there's not just one Easter story. There's actually two. Right? There's that one that happened in the morning, but there's one that happened a little later on in the day. And that is the story that I want to focus on today. Right? It's the story of, of two people who get the Easter story, the good news of the empty tomb, right? who, who experience it, who get it a little delayed. They get it delayed. You see, these two people, they were not at the tomb. They did not see the stone rolled away or receive a message from an angel. They were not with the disciples in a room hiding out, hoping for a, a crazy resurrection type story. These two people, they found themselves in a position that I think that many of us find ourselves in. 
right? When it, when it seems like all hope is lost, right? When, when it seems like there's just no way out, right? When we're confused, when we're sad, when we're angry, and looking with all that we have for just a glimmer of hope. See, the, these two people, if we are honest, can sound a little bit more like we sound or, or how we feel, right? We find ourselves living in a crazy world, don't we? Right? That seems to be brimming with questions instead of answers. We find ourselves in a world where there's a lot more pain instead of healing. We find ourselves with worries instead of clear paths forward. But what this story that we're going to look at in a minute tells us is this. Right? Hope delayed is not hope denied. Right? Hope delayed is not hope denied. Look. I get it, right? For some people, right, like the first story of Easter, hope, it shows up early and it shows up often. But this second story that we're going to look at, the one that is not told quite as often, the one that unfolds a little later on in the day, well, on that first Easter Sunday, it can remind us that when everything, when nothing seems to make sense, everything is in confusion, there still is a powerful hope that is available to us. So hope delayed is not hope denied. All right, so the second story begins in Luke chapter 24, if you have your Bibles. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, and you can take those with you. They are for you to take, to use, to mark up, to read, to give away. Uh, just be careful when you're grabbing the, in the, from the seats in front of you, right? No tickling each other. Watch your, watch your hands. <laughs> All right, but those Bibles are for you. And if you're watching online or if you're here, you can also download the free Foundry Burke app at your favorite app store. Click the Bible tab, and today's scripture is already pulled up there for you. All right, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to start. And it says this. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, it says Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Right? But God kept them from recognizing them. All right, go ahead and keep your, keep your finger there. We're going to get back to it in just a second. Now, in John's account of Jesus' crucifixion, right, we just read Luke's account of, of some of the events after the, the, the crucifixion. In John's account of Jesus' life and his gospel, when he's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, the events that happened on Friday, on Good Friday, he says this. In chapter 19, of verse 25 of John, he says this. Standing by the cross, right, on that day, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, right? The three Marys were there. Now, theologian, and one of my favorites, N.T. Wright, who's also like the standard when it comes to New Testament theology or New Testament um, a doctrine and, and history, he says that the couple, the people walking away from Jerusalem that day to Emmaus, that late afternoon, were Cleopas and his wife, right? So Mary's sister, right? Jesus' uncle and aunt. So his mother's sister and her husband. Now let that sink in there for a minute, Foundry Church. Right? This couple walking away. Right? Which direction are they headed? Well, they're 
headed away from Jerusalem, it says, right? They are going to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And now notice what it said in verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things. Now, another way to translate that, and it has been translated this way, is that they were disputing with each other, right? Now, we get it right now. Now, we get it, right? Disputing. Or how we would say is that Mary and Cleopas were having a big old fight on their travels, right? An argument. That never happens to us, does it? Right? That never happens to us. When our emotions are high, when we're sad or when we're angry, no one ever has a short temper, I just, right? Or when we're on a, a road trip and we're traveling for spring break, it's always smooth sailing, right? There's never an issue at the, the ticket counter or there's never an issue with the kids in the back seat. Ha, huh, right? That's what we say, ha. Huh. That's just not the way it is. That's crazy. It's just not the way it is, right? Some of Christina and I's biggest fights are when we are on the road. Now, ours are a little different because we're usually fighting about where to stop for dinner, but we still get the picture, right? And we can still see what's going on. We see it clearly. A married couple hurting, right? They're, they're worried. They are devastated for their sister Mary and for their own loss of a nephew, right? There, there are some serious tensions in the air at this moment. And it is very possible that they do not share the same level of faith in Jesus, right? John's gospel, it says that Cleopas's wife was at the cross, right? Where, where was Cleopas, right? So perhaps this, this argument, this disagreement is a, hey, I told you conversation from Cleopas, right? It's like, hey, I like the kid, but there was something off about him, right? That could have been the argument, right? That could have been the dispute, or perhaps this is a, you know, where were you when I needed you type of argument or conversation from the missus, right? I was at that cross. I was at that crucifixion when our nephew was being killed. Where were you when I needed you, now, whatever the reason, right, whatever the reason, the tension is thick when Jesus shows up, right? Luke 24, 16, verse 16 there, matter of factly informs us, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, we, we know that it was Jesus, right? We know that it was Jesus, but they, they do not. And we can only speculate why they do not recognize him, right? It could be genuine shock, right? All right, so let's look at it like this. Do you guys remember the ending of the movie Captain Phillips? You, remember, you know what movie I'm talking about with Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips? Right, the, the one where, where Tom Hanks is the, the captain of an ocean uh, shipping container ship, right? And they're, they're hijacked by, by pirates, and, and they're taken hostage. And by the end of the movie, Tom Hanks just himself is taken onto a lifeboat with a cover with just the hostages, right? And there's a, a harrowing journey. There's, there's this back and forth, this live or die moment. And then the hijackers are shot, right? Give it up for the, the Navy SEALs. Then they, they take him from the lifeboat, right? right? The, the captain, Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks' character, the hostage, they take him from the lifeboat. And what has to be the best five minutes of acting in Tom Hanks' career other than Toy Story, <laughs> right? They take him, they take him to get cleaned up. And he's just shaking, right? He's, he's shaking, he's shaking uncontrollably in shock and in disbelief. Now, I have a feeling 
I just have a feeling that is what they were feeling, that couple on the road that day. They were in complete disbelief. So maybe that is why they could not recognize him, why God was, was keeping their eyes shut to the situation. There was just no way that their brains uh, could comprehend Jesus being alive, so they just continued looking straight ahead and not paying attention. Whatever the, the real reason They're not looking for Jesus, so they do not recognize Jesus, right? But then finally, finally, right? Verse 17, Jesus budges into the conversation, right? Let me read it to you. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces, right? Jesus really just jumps into the conversation. He just budges right in. He says, hey, guys. What you doing? What you talking about? How's it going? And the response, right, is one that I think we would all give. They stood still, right, like it says, their faces downcast. In verse 18, it says this, then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days, Right? In other words, he's saying, hey, idiot. Yo, dummy, what are you doing? Are you the only person on the planet who has not heard about what's going down in the city? Right? And before we get too harsh on old Cleopas, right, look at this. Right? People, people without hope easily turn into people without manners. Right? So before we get too hard on them, let's remember, people without hope easily turn into people without manners. So if I would have been Jesus, if I would have been Jesus in that situation, I might have responded, okay, where have I been? Where have I been? I don't know, back there dying for all the sins of humanity? It would have been the biggest Jesus juke of all time. But instead, instead, Jesus responds, with a little bit more couth than I would have had. All right, verses 19 through 21 says this. What things, Jesus asked? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped... It was the Messiah. Right? We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And there we have it. Right? And there we have it. One of the saddest phrases ever spoken by any human being. Look, we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped, but, but we have given up that hope now. One of the saddest phrases in the English language. Author and preacher John Ortberg tells a, a great story about the time that he and his wife were preparing to have their first child. And he writes that they went to Lamaze classes, right? And he says, when my wife uh, was ready to give birth to our first child, we went through Lamaze classes together because I was going to be her coach, which sounds like a lot more fun than it actually is, he says. 
He says, one of the things they said in the Lamaze class was that they would never use the word pain, that they would not let us use that word when the big day come. They said, don't use the word pain. They said, when, when your wife is about to, to give birth, when you're giving birth, say this, you may be experiencing some discomfort. All right, that's what they said. That's what they said in the class. So he said the great day came, the big day came for Nancy, my wife, to, to give birth to our, our daughter, Laura. All right, and it was a 12-hour labor. And this is what he says. He says Laura's body was turned 180 degrees from where it was supposed to be. And then he said the hardest part of her head, which, which I don't know is what, the hardest part of her head was pressing against Nancy's spine. Very intense pain, he writes. He says, after 11 hours of this nonsense, the doctor reached inside my wife's body and literally turned the baby around and Nancy let out a scream that I will never forget, he says. Since I was the coach, this was my moment. Right? I, I, I knew I had to step up to the challenge and do something because I am the coach. And so I looked to Nancy and I said, are you experiencing some discomfort? Are you experiencing some different discomfort, right? Anybody here, anybody watching online, have you ever experienced some discomfort in life? Absolutely. All right, maybe it wasn't childbirth, right? Uh, but maybe it was the loss of a child. Maybe it was the loss of a relationship that you hoped uh, would last forever. Loss of a loved one. Or it could have been a, a job that you had hoped would turn things around for your family that your, your dream job would be all that it, it was thought it could be, right? All, right? all of us, all of us here, all of us watching online have felt the pain of a lost hope. We just have. We have all no doubt felt what Cleopas and his, his wife were feeling on the road that day. And I think it is people uh, like you I think it's people like you and it's people like, like me and, and Cleopas and his wife that the story of Jesus' resurrection means so much too. Right, look, Easter, Easter is all of these things. Look, Easter is the story of how much God loves us. That's why it means so much, right? But also, Easter is also the story of how much God loves us in spite of us, ourselves, our stupidity. Right? And what's also cool is that Easter is also the story of how it pains God, our Lord, to watch us struggle in this broken world. So he came into this world. But listen, Easter is also this. It's the story of how much God couldn't stand to be separated from us both in this life and in the next. So he provides an opportunity for everlasting life. Right? These things, that's what Easter is. But even more than that, as if we need more than that, he gives us more. He gives us another thing to grab a hold of. And let me say it like this. Right? I, I, as a, by nature of my profession, I talk with skeptics a lot. Right? I talk with skeptics all the time, and they will always mention in an offhanded sort of way, what is the big deal about Easter Sunday, uh, about this weekend? Well, I go like this, right? Okay. 
let me tell you what the big deal is. Right? The, the big deal about Easter is that it reminds us of this, the hope of a past forgiven. Right? The, the hope of a past forgiven. The Apostle Paul points out in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, it, it, it shows this. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Right? Some, some translations say like circumcised, right? Trimmed away. Right? Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. That is why Easter is such a big deal. Because our past is forgiven. It's nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, right, there is forgiveness that can be found by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Right, making him the leader and the forgiver of your life, forging your life on him. Right, not, only, not only do we all have hopes for tomorrow, but I can 100% guarantee that everyone in this room, everybody watching online has something in their past that they are less than proud of. We just do. All of us have regrets and things that we think disqualify us from the hope thing, right? from this, this having hope. Right? And Easter proves, this day proves that our past is forgiven. That our past is forgiven. Right? When we hand over our past, the crud, the junk of our past, when we hand that over to a risen Savior, we have a hope that our past does not define us, but rather, Jesus does. Right? When, when we live our best life, a life that is forged on him, the past is forgotten. That is a reason I tell people Easter is such a big deal. Right? The hope of a past forgiven. Another reason that I, I tell people that Easter is such a big deal is because it also is the story of how the hope of present problems can be managed. Right? The hope of present problems being managed because of what happened this day. Right? What we're experiencing, what we're going through. Right? A lot of people just feel like there is no way out. A lot of people feel like they're, uh, that life is over for them, that they are in the penalty box for good, that they, they can't improve, that they, they, they can't get better, that they can't get over the hump, that they can't beat the addiction. Listen, when we forge our life on God, we're never permanently stuck. When we forge our life on God, we are never permanently stuck. God has given you his power to beat that addiction, to overcome that lie that is written on your heart, to get through that situation, this situation, this circumstance, that circumstance, to kick in the teeth of whatever is taking your attention away from forging a lifelong reliance on him. He's given us the power to overcome. 
The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us when we forge our life on him. When we give our life to him, that power that defeated death is in us. You know, the, the very first song that we sung this morning, it said this, you turn graves into gardens. Graves, decay, death, darkness, dirt. You turn those things into gardens, growth, beauty. Right? You give beauty for ashes, it said. And then it says, you turn seas into highways. The first song we sung, you turn seas into highways. He makes a way through when it seems impossible. And it is so true that the Savior of the world died. And it seemed like a big problem to that couple on the road that first Easter Sunday. It seemed like there was no hope for their present circumstance. Right? And then, well... Jesus showed up, and he managed their problem. I mean, real quickly, back in Luke, the same story that we were looking at, right? He's going with them. He's walking with them. They tell him all that they, they have heard and what they have seen. Right? They're, they're talking about how, how they heard about the, these women from their group going to the, 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 the tomb, and it was empty, and they run back, and they, they tell the disciples that they're venting. Right? They're venting. And then in verse 25 of that same chapter, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Ah, you foolish people. Why do you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote about in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would, would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then it says, Jesus took them, took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures, from the word of God, the things concerning himself. And so by that time, they're entering or getting close to their final destination, Emmaus. And um, this couple, they're like, hey, stay with us. And Jesus is like, you playing it cool. And so he said, no, I'm going on. I'm just going to keep walking. And they said, no, come with us. Stay with us. Have a meal with us. And he does. And he's praying over that meal. He's praying over that meal. And that is when they realize, when, when God opens their eyes, and they realize that they're sitting with a Jesus that's resurrected from the grave. Listen, right? He listened to their troubles. He let them vent. And then he gave them a way forward. He said, look at this. Look, look. He gave them a new hope when they let him see himself, the risen Lord. Right? All that leads us to another, another reason that Easter is such a big deal and a reason that I tell people all the time that Easter is a big deal. It's because it is also the story of how the hope for my future, the hope that you have for your future and your kids' future and your family's future, the hope that we have for the future of our communities, the hope for my future can be secure. Right? The, the hope that we have for the future can be secure. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you see those words, living hope. We hear those words, a living hope. That is the big deal of Easter. Our hope is a person and he is alive. Our future is secure because it is in the hands of a risen Savior. One of my, 
One of my favorite ministers, one of my favorite old pastors from, from back in the day, when he has a great beard, Charles Spurgeon, right, back in Victorian England, he says this about our living hope. All right, take a look. He says, it is also called a living hope because it is imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope, Foundry Church, our hope in the future is secure at the right hand of God our Father, our Creator. Our hope for tomorrow is alive. It's alive. And Easter, this day, reminds us of that living hope. It it reminds us of the living hope that has power and produces change in our lives. Living hope. right? A living hope that turns our past shame into glory. A living hope that turns our present problems into manageable steps forward. A living hope that secures the best future possible. I recently read an old preacher's story about an old woman who had been diagnosed with cancer, and, and her doctor just lays it out pretty plainly. You have a few months to live. Right, the doctor told her to go ahead and make preparations to die. Right? Very, very plain. And so she contacted her pastor, and she told him how she wanted things arranged. Right? She, you know, right? which songs to sing at the funeral, which scriptures to read. Uh, she wanted to be buried with her favorite Bible. She wanted him, the preacher, to share the message of, of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and the resurrection from the grave. She said she wanted it told very plainly to all the people who would be attending the funeral. And as as the preacher was getting ready to leave, he was gathering up his notes and he was putting his coat on. He was getting ready to walk out the door and she said, oh, Oh, wait, 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 there's, there's one more thing. It is very important, very, very important. And so she says, uh, there, when, when everyone is standing around the casket for the final time and, and before I'm, I'm lowered down into the ground and buried before the, the, you know, the, the casket lid is shut for the last time, I want there to be a fork in my hand. I want there to be a fork in my hand. And the story goes on, the preacher, the the pastor, he didn't know what to say. He never heard something like this. And so he asked, why? Why is this so important? And and she said, you know, in all my years going to church, all all the church functions that I attended, all the meals that I shared with my brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, right, whenever we did that, there was there was food involved. Right? She probably attended the Foundry Church. Right? She said, all these things, right? There was food at all these church functions, at these church events, at these meals I shared. And she said, my favorite part would come when whoever was cleaning the dishes off the table would lean over and say, keep your fork. She said, that, that was my favorite part, right? When someone would lean over the table and just say, hey, keep, keep your fork, right? right? Man, keep your fork, right? In my opinion, uh, three of the best words in the English language. Right? And this lady, this lady said, 
It was her favorite part of all these events because she knew that it meant that something great was coming and that it wasn't just jello. <laughs> that, it, that it was something with substance like pie. And again, in my opinion, that's biblical food. That's the Lord's dessert, right? So she says, I, I just want people to see me there for the last time in my casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, preacher, something better is coming. Keep your fork. Something better is coming. Keep your fork. And so, Founder Church, the, the next time somebody asks you, why do you celebrate Easter? Or you yourself get to thinking, why go through all the trouble? Easter is about one thing and one thing only, and it is hope. It's about hope. Hope for all. Hope for anyone here this morning. Right? Hope regardless of where you've been or where you're, you're going right? or what you've done. Hope to overcome any problem, any circumstance. Hope to make it through the darkest of nights. Hope for anyone who wants it. Hope. Uh, the hope that, that says keep your fork because something better is coming. 